Well, uh, I am excited about the book of Romans. Uh, Romans is my uh, favorite book in the Bible. And uh, when we uh, think about the book of Romans, uh, there are a lot of different ways to think about it. But uh, uh, I think that, that Romans has a couple different ways that, that we can look at the book. And, and one of the ways is to think of it uh, as a, a legal brief. And, and uh, in, in that way, uh, we can think of it uh, like, like this. Uh, Romans makes an argument, uh, and it starts with uh, laying a foundation for uh, a particular argument that Paul wants to make. And that argument is that there is a problem with, with sin. We have a real problem with sin, uh, and we need a solution to that problem. Uh, so whether you're Jew, whether you're Gentile, it doesn't matter who you are, uh, you are under the condemnation of sin. Uh, and then there's a solution to that problem. That's the next argument that Paul makes. Uh, he's, he talks about the solution uh, to the problem, uh, and that is through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, if we receive Jesus as our Savior, uh, then we understand that uh, we are no longer under the condemnation. God credits the blood of Jesus Christ to our account, uh, and we are saved and that salvation changes us as the, as the Holy Spirit then indwells us and, and changes us over time. And, and over time, we become more like Jesus and we will uh, serve his people. Uh, so it kind of reads like a legal brief in that way, but it also reads like a, a theological discourse. And so uh, if we think about uh, any book of theology, uh, Romans is the most compact, concise, uh, comprehensive theological treatise that we could ever uh, read. And so if you pick up any 1,000 or 2,000-page volume on systematic theology, you're going to find that uh, that large volume has its roots in the 16 chapters of Romans. And so it's really a very strong theological treatise. And, and so uh, this book is going to test us. It's going to uh, challenge us uh, and our beliefs about certain issues in theology. And it may raise issues that we have never even considered or, or maybe even issues that uh, we have thought about, but because they're difficult, we've chosen not to deal with them at the particular moment. Uh, issues like uh, predestination, election, uh, is there a future for Israel, and, and difficult uh, problems like that. So it reads like a legal brief. It reads like a theological discourse, but it also reads like a sermon if you think about it. Um, there is a, a particular format of, of sermons called the problem-solution-application format. And uh, now that I've spilled the secret, you will uh, recognize that in a lot of sermons that you hear, uh, the preacher will present a problem, first of all. And in Romans, uh, that problem is sin. What are we going to do about this sin problem that we have? Uh, next comes the solution, and the solution to the sin problem is salvation. Uh, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we can be saved from our sins, and we are no longer under the penalty of sin because Jesus Christ has paid that penalty for us. So uh, now that we're saved, uh, what do we do? But now that we have salvation, how does this message apply to us? And that's what the last section of the book is about. It's about the practical outworkings, the application of this book. Uh, so we see this uh, uh, sermon format, problem, solution, application. Uh, so we can look at this book like a legal brief, and we can look at this book like a theological discourse. And, and if we do, we might be intimidated because, you know, those are scary things to, to, to take on legal briefs and theological discourses. But what I want us to see is, is that uh, behind every theological doctrine that we encounter, behind every verse in the Bible, behind uh, every concept that we talk about, uh, every page in this book is the love and grace uh, of God and of Jesus Christ to come and die uh, on the cross for our sins.
So you might ask, why now? If you love Romans so much, why have you waited so long to get into the book of Romans? Well, that's a good question. And uh, there are two answers to the question. The one, one is a human answer, and that answer is that, uh, honestly, I've been a little bit intimidated to take on this book because, you know, next to the book of Revelation, this might be the most difficult uh, book in the entire uh, New Testament. But uh, I'm excited about it and the fact that we've, you know, known each other for three years now. And, uh, you know, if I say something that offends you slightly, we disagree on some fine point of theology, I think we'll be able to get past it now that we uh, have a relationship. And also, given the fact that, uh, you know, the state of our world, the state of the culture that we're in uh, just cries out uh, for the need for uh, theological uh, anchoring. And, and so that's what Romans gives us. So since I've been here, we've done three major studies, I would call them. We did God's grace in the life of Abraham. Then we did a very long study in the book of Acts. And then we did a study in the Sermon on the Mount. And before each and every one of those studies, I prayed and I asked God, uh, is the time right now? Can, can we do the book of Romans? And I never felt like uh, God was telling me that the time was right until now. Uh, I feel now that God has said, uh, yep, go ahead. The time is right. Let's, let's study the book of Romans. So that's what we're going to do. So uh, many people have been influenced by the book of Romans over the centuries, and uh, many have concluded that Romans is a masterpiece, and it's the greatest book ever written, and uh, it would be hard to disagree with that. Um, I just want to think about some of the things that have been said about this book by some of the great scholars and theologians uh, over the centuries. So uh, Martin Luther said about this book, uh, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel and is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word, by heart, but occupy himself with it every day uh, as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. What a great quote about the book of Romans. <clears throat> Uh, Luther's successor, uh, Philip Melanchthon, called Romans the compendium, which is a fancy word for the a collection or the anthology of all of Christian doctrine. Uh, John Calvin marveled, when anyone understands this epistle, he has passage open to him of the understanding of the whole scripture. A uh, pretty heady quote there uh, for what the, the uh, book of Romans meant to him. Uh, Samuel Coleridge, who was an English poet and literary critic, he called the letter to the Romans the most profound work in existence. And Francis Godet, a 9th century, 19th century Swiss theologian, called this uh, the cathedral of the Christian faith. So uh, we're dealing with very high-level stuff here when we get to the book of Romans. And uh, when you think about it, uh, some uh, of the most prominent Christians we know in history have been converted uh, to Christianity through a reading of the book of Romans. And uh, so uh, let's think about uh, the, the man August, Augustine, uh, you know, fourth century, fifth century scholar who came to faith uh, through the book of Romans. But before uh, he did. He was living a life of uh, sinful sexual pleasure and hedonism in, in all of its forms. And uh, his mother, Monica, prayed for him. And he was uh, coming to faith in Christianity. But he became very frustrated that he could not leave his old sinful life behind. And uh, so he wrote this. Uh, he said about it, he said, I came to Romans 13, 14, uh, and this is the verse that changed my life, which says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And that, was, that spoke to him because of the lifestyle that he was leading. And after uh, that verse settled in, he said, no further would I read, nor had I any need 
Instantly, at the end of this sentence, a clear light flooded my heart and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. And Augustine was saved and he's had an impact on, on the world like a few before or since because of uh, his vast uh, writings. Uh, Martin Luther, who I just mentioned, served as a, a Catholic priest at the University of uh, Wittenberg for years, uh, but he really didn't understand Romans, and he said, I really want to understand the book of Romans, but he kept stumbling over uh, this phrase, the righteousness of God. What does the righteousness of God mean? And he thought that it meant the righteousness of God in dealing and meriting out a justice uh, to sinners, uh, to the unrighteous. But one night, while pondering this phrase over and over again, uh, he came to this conclusion. He said, the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby, through grace and mercy, he justifies us by faith. And of course, uh, Martin Luther changed the world as a result of that. He said afterward, then I felt myself to be, to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. The whole scripture took on new meaning, whereas before the righteousness of God filled me with hate, it now began to fill me inexpressibly with sweet love. The passage of Paul became to me the gateway to heaven." And it's not too much to call uh, Luther's conversion one of the most important events in the history uh, of mankind. Uh, aside from uh, Jesus' resurrection and Paul's conversion, I think it would be fair to say that at least in terms of its impact on uh, religion uh, since the birth of Jesus Christ, there may be uh, no more significant event than, than the conversion of Martin Luther. Uh, John Wesley preached the gospel for years before he really understood the gospel of grace through the book of Romans. Uh, this is what he said. He said, in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersburg Gate. It was a church meeting, uh, Aldersburg Street. Oh, I'm sorry, Earl Aldersgate Street, where one, uh, someone was reading the, apostle, uh, the uh, Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. And at about a quarter to nine, uh, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and had an assurance that was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And now, uh, formerly having been a preacher, but now a preacher with full understanding of the gospel, uh, Wesley went about uh, preaching uh, wherever he could, uh, open air, traveling throughout the world, preaching uh, outside to whoever would listen, and changed uh, the world like few before or after him. So, it's my hope that in studying this book, uh, that this book is going to have the same impact on us that it had so on some of the other people who have gone before us. And I hope that we have a better understanding of theology by the time we're through with this book for sure. Uh, this book is going to stretch us in lots of ways. But more than that, uh, my hope is that we are going to see our sin problem exposed in bright technicolor for, so that we can't ignore it uh, and yet see that the solution to the problem is the blood, uh, the red blood of Jesus. Christ poured out for us on the cross and that we understand God's grace in greater measure than we ever had. If God had not provided the solution to the problem, uh, we would be forever damned, lost in our sinned, uh, sins, and consigned to hell. And so uh, John Newton pegged it perfectly when he called it Amazing Grace. And it's quite uh, providential that you guys sang Amazing Grace this morning because that's exactly what it is. Uh, amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. 
So uh, whenever we study uh, a new book of the Bible, we want to get some background. We want to get some context so we understand as much as we can about it before uh, we actually get into the book. And if you haven't guessed by now, we're not actually going to get into the book this week. That's going to start next week. This week is introduction. Uh, so this week we're just going to talk about context and background. Uh, and so what I want us to see is uh, that we need to know as much as we can about uh, the book before we start actually talking about it. And so we want to ask the who, what, when, where, and why questions. We want to know who wrote the book, when was it written, why was it written, to whom was it written, where was it written from. Uh, all of these questions give us a context into the background of the letter so that we understand why the author wrote the letter, what he was trying to accomplish, uh, the message he was trying to convey. And then once uh, we have the background, once we have the context, then we kind of want to step back from the book, almost like an artist would uh, look at his painting uh, from, from afar, see the whole thing uh, uh, from a distance, and then he'll, he'll go up and, and touch up this and touch up that. And that's how we'll do it. We'll, we'll look at it as a big overview, and then we're going to dig into each individual section uh, as we go through it. So uh, we'll start with the author of the book. Uh, the author of Romans is Paul. Uh, he said so in the letter, and no serious or, or credible critical scholar has ever challenged uh, Paul's authorship uh, to the letter uh, to the Romans. Now, in our study in the book of Acts, we spent a significant amount of time with Paul, uh, following him in his journey. So we know that, that Paul was a contemporary of Jesus Christ, although they had never met, actually, uh, until uh, Jesus uh, saw him uh, after he had been resurrected and ascended to heaven, and he met him on Paul's road to Damascus. A bright light knocked Paul off of his horse, and, and Jesus Christ uh, spoke to him. Remember about Paul that his parents raised him according to the strictest sect of the Pharisees, and he was educated at the feet of the esteemed rabbi Gamaliel, and he called himself the Hebrew among Hebrews, and he was advancing in Judaism faster than all of his peers. He was the model of what a student of Hebrewism should look like. But then suddenly, on his way to Damascus, he was knocked off of his horse by this blinding light and the revelation of Jesus Christ to him. And uh, we read about that in Acts chapter 9. But from that point on, uh, Paul's life was completely changed. And uh, like most of us, uh, Paul can divide his life into the B.C., before Christ days, and the A.C., uh, the after Christ days. And uh, Paul's after Christ days uh, were certainly days that had an impact on the world like none other. And uh, we can't possibly underestimate uh, Paul's impact on the world. More than anyone else, he brought Christianity throughout the entire Roman Empire and then ultimately uh, through those who heard the gospel through him, uh, the entire world. Uh, so he traveled on three missionary journeys. Uh, we know about that. We've studied them in the book of Acts. And uh, along his third missionary journey, he determined that he was going to bring an offering to Jerusalem. Uh, and so he takes this offering, he goes to Jerusalem with the offering, and there uh, a riot ensues because he's been accused uh, by his enemies of bringing a Gentile uh, into the temple. So the Roman uh, guards arrest Paul, they throw him in prison, uh, and they, the Roman guards discover this plot against Paul that uh, they, the Jews are going to kill him. Uh, so this soldier uh, sends Paul uh, on horseback with the Roman army uh, to take him to Caesarea where he can uh, stand trial before Felix. When he gets to Caesarea, he's imprisoned there for two years awaiting trial. He endures two sham trials by Felix and by Festus. And ultimately, he has to appeal to Rome, to Caesar, to hope for a fair trial. So they put him on a ship. They send him to Rome. The ship 
uh, shipwrecks, as we know, uh, yet Paul uh, makes it to Rome, and when he gets to Rome, he spends two years there awaiting a trial. Uh, we're not told specifically what happened after that because the book of Acts ends at that point, uh, but what we believe is that Paul was released after two years in prison in Rome, and then uh, after that, uh, the events that occur in First and Second Timothy and Titus uh, took place, and he wrote those letters. Then Paul was rearrested, brought back to Rome, and lost his life under Nero uh, sometime about 67 AD. But during all of this time, as Paul traveled around, uh, he evangelized face to face, house to house, preaching the gospel ceaselessly wherever he went. He preached in synagogues. He preached in churches that he started. He wrote letters to churches that he started. He wrote letters to churches that other people started, like uh, the church in Rome, like the church in Colossae. And so uh, he had an incomparable impact on the world. And so this is our author. This is Paul. Uh, and nobody has ever challenged that he was the author. Well, Paul wrote the letter, but who was he writing this letter to? Uh, he wrote the letter uh, to an audience of Jews, Gentiles, or perhaps both. Well, probably it's both, uh, because Paul addressed this letter to all who are in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints. Now, we know that Paul had never been to Rome up to this point uh, in uh, his life. Uh, he didn't start the church there. Probably the church was started by uh, Jews who had received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and then migrated to Rome. And once they got there, uh, these, uh, these Jews who had been converted to, to Christ uh, influenced Gentiles. And then some Gentiles were converted as well. So the Roman church was a mixture uh, of Jews and Gentiles. Uh, and then... Uh, as Paul was addressing uh, this letter, he, there's evidence that he was talking to both Jews and Gentiles uh, in this letter. So, uh, for example, there are 57 uh, mentions in Romans uh, or references to the Old Testament. And Paul uses the word law 72 times uh, in the book of Romans. So these things obviously would appeal to Jews more than Gentiles. Uh, Paul also greeted Priscilla and Aquila, who were Jews that we le learned about from uh, Acts. And he talked about his readers not being under law, which would only apply to Jews. Of course, the Gentiles had never been under the law. And he reserved three chapters in the book of Romans to talk about Israel and its future. So we see clear evidence that part of his audience, at least, was Jewish. But then we also understand that part of his audience was Gentile, because he said specifically uh, in 15:16, God has appointed me as a minister to the Gentiles. And in chapter 11, verse 13, he addressed the Gentiles specifically, calling them you Gentiles. So we see evidence of both. And Paul focused so much on the unity of the church in the last few chapters because he had a mixed audience and because he wanted to unify whatever differences existed in uh, the Roman church. Uh, so that's his audience, probably a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. Well, what about the date of the letter? Well, we don't know the exact date, uh, frankly, but we do have some clues in the letter that can give us a range of when the letter uh, was probably written. <clears throat> in uh, Romans chapter 16, verse 1, uh, Paul told the Romans to welcome Phoebe uh, and mentioned that she was coming from Centria, which is a port in Corinth. So we understand that the letter was probably written from Corinth. And so we want to know, well, when was Paul in Corinth? Well, he was in Corinth during the third missionary journey. He spent about three months there. And Corinth is kind of right in the middle of um, 
I thought I had a map, but I don't. Uh, Corinth is right in the middle of, of uh, the Roman Empire. You have Corinth, and then Jerusalem is to the east of Corinth, and Rome is to the west of Corinth. Uh, so Paul spent three months in Corinth during his third missionary journey. He probably gave the letter that he wrote to Phoebe, and Phoebe traveled west to Rome while Paul traveled east uh, with his offering that he was going to bring to uh, that church in Jerusalem. Uh, so we would say that he wrote that letter in the spring, because you'll remember during that third missionary journey, he said he was in a hurry to get back to Jerusalem before the Passover. So that would lead us to believe that he wrote the letter in the winter because he needed a few months to get from where he was in Corinth to Jerusalem. So if we were going to say uh, when he wrote the letter, we would say that he wrote the letter in the winter and probably in the winter of either 56, 57, or 58 A.D., and so that gives us some context because this is before he was arrested in Rome. And, and so those epistles that he wrote from prison have a little bit different flavor than the, than the writings that he wrote here, uh, which happened in the mid-50s, like 1st, 2nd Corinthians and Romans. So that's probably when he wrote it, the winter of 56, 57, 58 AD. How about Paul's purpose? Why did he write this letter? Why did he feel that it was necessary to write a letter to the Romans when he wasn't going to Rome? He was going in the opposite direction to Jerusalem. Well, uh, Paul said uh, in the letter that he wanted to notify them of his plans to visit them. Uh, Paul wanted to preach the gospel to the entire known world. Uh, so he wanted to prep them for his coming. And he said he wanted to impart a spiritual gift to them, which would come in the form uh, not only of his letter, uh, but also uh, the visit that he was going to make to them. And he also mentioned that he wanted to receive a spiritual gift from them, uh, which he could get by being in their company. It's nice to be around like-minded Christians, especially if you're the Apostle Paul, who's uh, running from enemies and, and dealing with enemies your entire life. It's nice to, to deal with friends. Uh, another motive of Paul's was to raise funds for his trip to Spain. Remember, he said, uh, I hope to see you and have you send me along on my way to Spain. Uh, Paul's uh, urgent desire was not to build on another man's foundation, to preach the gospel in places where it had never been preached before. And, and he had Spain on his mind and he was hoping for some help along the way there. Uh, Paul also wanted to promote unity uh, among the Jews and Gentiles. Whatever difficulties they were having between uh, the, the ideas that came straight from Judaism and, and the Gentiles who didn't have those ideas, Paul wanted to resolve those. And finally, he wanted to write a, a, a comprehensive statement of Christian doctrine against his opponents. Uh, we have to realize, uh, as, as we just ran through the chronology of Paul's life, uh, Paul was not uh, some uh, ivory tower scholar writing from the safety and security of his office like a college professor might, right? Paul was constantly on the move. He was constantly uh, going here and there and encountering opposition wherever he went. And if we read Galatians, we read about the Judaizers who insisted that a Gentile had to become a Jew and adhere to all the Jewish laws and rituals before he could become a Christian. And, and these guys were serious. They were out to kill Paul. And so danger was Paul's middle name. And so he's constantly on the move, constantly looking over his shoulder in fear for his life. And so uh, Romans uh, was a concrete statement of Christian doctrine that would be on paper and unchanging and would not be lost if somehow he uh, turned a corner and was ambushed and murdered by his enemies. And so that could have happened at any moment with Paul because he had lots of enemies. So 
to sum it up, we could say that uh, his purposes were to carefully set forth a, a statement of Christian doctrine uh, to establish a missionary base so that he could make his way to Spain and to unify the church uh, of Jews and Christians uh, in Rome. Well, what about the theme? What's the main theme of the book of Romans? Well, we find it uh, early in the letter. It's in chapter 1, and the theme is justification by faith. In other words, it's the gospel. Uh, Romans uh, uh, 6, 1, 16, and 17 are the key verses of the whole scripture, or the whole book. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And most of the rest of the letter is just explaining uh, and, and expositing uh, that great doctrine of justification by faith. It's all about the grace of God, God's power to save, and the universal offer of salvation. Uh, the gospel is available to all, Jew and Gentile alike. Well, how about the contents of this letter? Uh, I put a chart in each one of your uh, bulletins this morning, and if you want to take that out, I'm going to go through that chart. Uh, you can... Feel free to bring this with you in the weeks to come or study it on your own. Uh, I wanted to give us this helpful tool uh, to study the book of Romans. So I'll put it up on the screen, but uh, yeah, it's too small for us to see. Uh, anyway, uh, we'll just run through it quick. Uh, th this chart uh, is, is, uh, it shows us that the book divides into several sections. And the first section uh, is the section that I'm calling sin from chapter 1 uh, to <coughs> chapter 3, verse 20. And the first 17 verses, Paul gives him this introduction, tells us who he's writing to, and tells us he is not ashamed of the gospel. Uh, just a general introduction. And then from uh, chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20, he, he talks about this doctrine of sin. Uh, first, for the, for the Gentile, he talks that, that the Gentiles are all under sin uh, because they understand who God is through nature. Uh, but lest the Jews think that they're in the clear, no, uh, they have the scripture. Chapter 2 tells them that they too are under the wrath of God because of their violation of God's uh, will. Uh, beginning of chapter 3 through verse 20, uh, Paul talks about the universal problem of sin. Jew and Gentile alike are all under sin. They are all condemned by sin. So that is the problem. Paul sets it forth in, in clear uh, picture for them. Uh, but then he provides the solution, and that is salvation. Starting in chapter 3, verse 21 to the end of chapter 5, uh, Paul begins uh, to expand on this great doctrine of justification uh, by faith. Uh, that's the good news. And so at the end uh, of chapter 3, he's talking about uh, th that God justifies the sinner uh, who believes in Jesus Christ. And when we talk about justification, it's a legal term. Uh, it, it means that the Christian, uh, the sinner who believes in Jesus Christ, is, is declared righteous uh, even though he is not righteous. So when we talk about justification, uh, we're not talking about uh, an infusion of righteousness as though we are made righteous. We don't become righteous because of justification. God declares us righteous. He calls us righteous because of justification, even though we're not. 
Uh, imagine you got a speeding ticket uh, because you were going 95 uh, in a 65 zone, and the cop gives you a ticket and you go to court, and you're dead to rights. You're as guilty as you can possibly be, but the judge calls you not guilty even though you are guilty. That's what justification by faith is like. You are guilty, but the judge has declared you not guilty, and God does that uh, for us even though we are sinners because we have trusted in Jesus Christ for our salvation, and because Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins, we're declared righteous when we place our faith in him. So chapter four, Paul goes on and he gives this illustration about uh, how it's not by your works, it's by the grace of God by which you're saved. Don't rely on your works. And he uses Abraham as an illustration. Was Abraham uh, justified before or after circumcision? Well, he was justified before circumcision, before any work that he had done. Uh, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now you probably know Many people who try to earn justification, earn salvation by the good works that they do. And if we think that we can earn our salvation, well, it's because we really misunderstand who we are and we have an inflated view of ourselves. Uh, remember, chapter 3 says that there is no one who does good. No, not one. None of us uh, can earn our way into heaven. And so in chapter 5, Paul proves that righteousness is a gift from God. While we were yet sinners, uh, God uh, reconciled us uh, to make peace with us through the blood of Jesus Christ, even while we were his enemies. And then at the end of chapter 5, uh, Paul talks about how this is possible. Well, through the one man, sin entered the world through Adam. And just in the same way, through one man, uh, uh, God can justify us through uh, the God-man, Jesus Christ. He moves into the next section, chapter 6 to 8, talking now not about salvation, but sanctification. How do we live uh, in light of our salvation? What happens to us uh, now that we are saved? And how do we progress in the Christian faith? Uh, what is our relationship now to sin? What's our relationship to death? Well, chapter 6 talks about our relationship to sin. Uh, we are dead to sin. We are no longer under its control. And sin is no longer our master because we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And what about our relationship to the law? Well, chapter 7, we are no longer under the law either. The law is a mirror to show us that we are sinful people in need of a Savior, but we're not under the law anymore. We are under grace. And then when we come to chapter 8, my favorite chapter in the entire Bible. I love chapter 8. I can't wait to get there. Uh, Romans chapter 1, uh, my uh, chapter 8, verse 1, my favorite verse in the whole Bible. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 28, uh, there is therefore now, uh, nope, got that one wrong. Uh, but, uh, all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Uh, Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, Romans 8, 35, what shall separate us from the love of God? Uh, the answer is nothing, right? And as we read through chapter 8, we just get so fired up as we continue to read all of these uh, wonderful, amazing statements about God's salvation and what he has planned for us uh, in the future. And so as we come to the end of chapter uh, 8, we might think that now would be the time to talk about, well, now what do we do in light of all of this that, that has happened? But there's still a question that would arise in his audience's mind. And chapters 9 through 11 deal with that question. What about the Jew? Uh, what advantage is there to the Jew if, in fact, all uh, are under the grace of God and, and the, the offer of salvation is available to everyone? 
Well, Paul gives them a lesson about God's sovereignty in election here. Uh, Paul talked about Israel's past as God's sovereign elect in chapter 9. So we see God's sovereignty reflected there. Uh, but then in chapter 10, uh, Paul talks about Israel's responsibility in failing to receive Christ and in rejecting him. So you have this idea of God's sovereignty on the one hand and man's responsibility on the other hand. And both are true. And there is tension there. And we're going to have to learn to get comfortable in the tension between God's sovereignty and our responsibility because they are both true. But then he moves on to chapter 11, and he's going to talk about the future of Israel. Uh, does Israel have a future? Well, yeah, Israel does have a future. Uh, God has a plan for Israel. God has not rejected Israel, but a partial hardening has happened until the full number of Gentiles comes in, and then all Israel will be saved. And then the doxology at the end of chapter 11, oh, the depths of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, just some of the most uh, wonderful and majestic words that are ever have been written about a God in the Bible. And then we come to the final major section, uh, verse, or chapters 12 to 16, that discuss the practical outworkings of our salvation. Chapter 12 opens with the familiar, uh, therefore, in light of God's tender mercies. Uh, the therefore uh, points us back to chapters 1 through 11. In light of God's uh, salvation and, and the grace that he has provided to us, uh, how do we live? And chapter 12 gives us instruction about our service and dedication to each other and to God as living sacrifices. Uh, chapter 13 talks about our responsibility to human government, to, to serve it, to obey it, uh, as long as it's serving the proper uh, function that God has assigned to it. Chapter 14 and 15 answer questions about our freedom and liberty. Uh, what freedoms do we have? What liberty, we ha liberty do we have? Uh, when is it proper to exercise our freedom and liberty? And when is it proper to limit or curb our freedom and liberty for the sake uh, of a weaker believer? Uh, chapter 15 also exhorts us to evangelism and to missions. And then finally, uh, Paul ends the letter in chapter 16 with greetings and exhortations uh, to his friends and acquaintances in Rome. So, brothers and sisters, what I want to impart to us today is that uh, Romans is not some dusty old tome that we uh, dust off and open up when we want to discuss and debate the finer points of theology, like, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Roman doesn't answer questions like that. It's a very practical book, even though it's a very theological book. It's the gospel of God's grace in saving sinners uh, like you and me from hell and into God's glorious presence uh, and into the presence of Jesus Christ for all eternity. So let me conclude by just making some uh, general observations about this book. And the first thing I want us to understand is really what I've already just said. Romans is relevant for believers. It's relevant for our times. Uh, we shouldn't groan and think, well, Romans is too heavy. I don't want to deal with Romans. It's just too hard. Uh, it's not too hard. It's just a, it, it's an amazing book. And we might think that because we've accepted Jesus as our Savior, we don't need to study Romans. Uh, well, the fact is we need to study Romans because uh, we are saved. We need to understand how far God has stooped to us in offering this amazing gospel of grace and salvation to us. And it also provides us with instructions for how we live now in light of our salvation. 
You know, so many people subscribe to this uh, idea of legalism, uh, which is basically a list of do's and don'ts that they uh, adhere to and think they're earning favor with God because of it. And then they impose this list of do's and don'ts on other people. Uh, that's legalism. Uh, and people who are legalists don't understand grace. But then on the other hand, you have people who are uh, what we would call licentious. Uh, people who think, well, if grace is so free, I can just do whatever I want. And uh, there's no penalty or consequence for that. And people who are either licentious or legalists don't understand the gospel. Uh, Christ died to set us free from sin and from the law and even from death. But God didn't just save us from something. He saved us to something. He saved us to a life of service and love for God for as many years as he grants us to live on the earth. And if we truly love God and if we truly love the people that Jesus died to save, we will serve them and love them like Jesus Christ did. So uh, brothers and sisters, Romans is relevant for believers, but Romans is also relevant for unbelievers. Uh, Paul shows us step by step the condemnation that, that is present, uh, the wrath of God that exists uh, on all sinners who have not yet uh, received Jesus Christ as salvation and for salvation. And there are lots of reasons why people are condemned. They're condemned, first of all, because they have seen and understand God's revelation through nature. God makes his presence and his existence uh, uh, real and apparent through nature. And God also uses our consciences to condemn us. People know inherently what is right and what is wrong, and people do what is wrong when they know they should do what is right, and their consciences convict them. And then there are people who do have the word of God. The Jews, who Paul is writing to in this letter, have the word of God. And so uh, they understand. And so no one has any excuse, uh, whether by nature, whether by conscience, or by the word. God has revealed himself, and we are accountable to him for that knowledge. And God will never allow anyone to stand before him and say, uh, I just didn't know. Uh, we did know. We do know. As someone who came to faith later in life, uh, for me in my mid-30s, I lived a life marked by sin until then, until my mid-30s. And when I was doing it, I openly denied God. Uh, but I think I knew and I believe that every self-proclaimed atheist really does know uh, deep down that there is a God. And most of them, including myself, are just dishonest. Uh, they don't want to change their lifestyle. And so they deny the existence of God because obedience to God requires a lifestyle change. Uh, and sin is fun for a time, but people don't want to give it up. Uh, and I know that very well. Uh, but the bill for our sin always comes due, and it's gonna come present, it's gonna come due in this present life. And if we don't repent of it, it's gonna come due in the life to come. And so uh, what I want for us is to use what we already know and what we're going to learn uh, from the book of Romans to help our unbelieving friends and family come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why Romans is relevant for unbelievers too. And finally, uh, Romans is a book for our times. Uh, we study Romans because it answers almost every theological or practical question uh, that we can imagine, and many that we have not yet considered. I was looking through uh, John MacArthur's commentary on the book of Romans, and uh, he gave a list of all the questions that Romans answers, at least the ones that he came up with off the top of his head, and there were like a hundred of them or something. And uh, I won't read them all to you, uh, but I did uh, read them myself, and after I was done reading them, I came up with several more on my own that I think the book uh, answers. So uh, there's a lot here. 
And I promise you that as we go through the book, I'm not going to duck any issues. I'm not going to duck any sensitive questions or issues or anything like that. We're going to talk about everything. Uh, sin, homosexuality, race, gender, election, predestination, how Adam's sin gets transferred to us, uh, God's plan for Israel, spiritual gifts, uh, the believer's responsibility to human government, all of these things and, and many more things we're going to talk about uh, as we get into this book. And we're going to do that because doctrine matters. Uh, doctrine absolutely matters. And without doctrine, we won't know what to believe. And you don't need me to tell you that our world has completely lost its theological moorings, right? It's not anchored to anything anymore. And you can see that by watching the news for five minutes or going on Twitter or whatever uh, your news source is. Uh, culture has abandoned the Bible, right? We know that. And now so the world floats at sea uh, without a compass. Uh, and it's subject to every new uh, woke opinion uh, that is out there. And it's subject to uh, how people feel rather than the word of God. And, and people are tethered to anything but what the Bible says. And so people are adrift. They're lost without an anchor. And so we need to know what the Bible says. We need to know why or what we believe and why we believe it. And if we're going to know, recognize what is false and offer correction, we have to know what is true. And Romans is going to do that for us. Romans anchors us to God and to true doctrine. We need tough truth. We need to be convicted of our sins while we live in an anything goes. Uh, you have your truth and I have my truth. Let's not step on each other, other's toes kind of culture that we live in now. Uh, I, I caution you. Romans is going to get in your face. It's going to get in your business. It's going to upset you. Uh, but it's the word of God. And so we have to get into it. We have to talk about it. And we're going to study it because we can't hear often enough about God's grace and saving sinners like us. Uh, the love of Jesus permeates the whole book. And I pray that as we study it, uh, it's going to inspire us to new levels of spiritual growth as we enter the new year uh, and enter into the new decade. So a happy new year, everyone, and uh, welcome to the book of Romans. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord God, we thank you uh, for the book of Romans and what we're going to learn through it, Lord. Uh, it is truly an amazing book, and uh, we're just so eager to get started. Lord, thank you for your son who died on the cross for our sins so that we could have eternal life. And we pray uh, that everyone in here has accepted and received the gospel and is saved. And if there is anyone who hasn't, Lord, uh, I pray that uh, something that you have communicated through me this morning will, will uh, change them like Luther was changed, like Wesley was changed, like Augustine was changed. Uh, Lord, pour out your grace through the Holy Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> 